From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome everybody to episode 163 of the Killing It podcast what an amazing thing so just so you all know when this airs i will if all goes as as planned i will have just gotten back from uh uh, videotaping the eruption of a volcano on hawaii so and if he isn't here next in the next episode you know that he was not faster than the lava exactly i don't have to outrun (laughs) the lava i just have to outrun you (laughs) Slightly larger uh, eruption than he had planned for. But, gents, I have a funny question for this week. What's the strangest thing in your refrigerator? I have to say, uh, there's almost nothing in my refrigerator. I could probably count on the on two hands every single item in my refrigerator. So I don't think I have anything strange in there. Maybe a block of cheese. Like, that's kind of it for me. Oh, you've got like the the ba- you've got the bachelor fridge. I have definitely have the bachelor fridge. Bachelor fridge in a DoorDash world. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. See, now I I live in the refrigerator and and I have have a strange affinity for many different flavors of mustard and and condiments. Like I don't just use a shelf in the door of the refrigerator for condiments. I. I use all of the shelves because you never know what kind of flavor and variety you need. But I would say the strangest thing in my refrigerator, I will admit, is I have pre-sliced Spam and put it back (laughs) in the refrigerator. Because the only thing standing between me and including Spam in almost every meal is you're like, oh, I got to crack that can open. You got to shake it out and then you got to slice it up and and you're never going to use the whole can for one thing. If you could just eliminate the effort by pre-slicing your Spam... You can include spam in almost everything. I have to admit, I've never heard of that before in my life. I've never heard that. And now I'm going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I will. Well, I have to preface mine with the, so I'm not allowed to go in the grocery store in my house. Nice. And the the reason is, is I buy all that extra stuff that you're not supposed to have, like donuts and cookies. And like, if I'm sent to the grocery store, there is a price to be paid for that trip. And it is whatever junk I want to come home with. Thus, I'm not allowed to go to the grocery store. So I don't have a lot of control over the refrigerator. The one kind of obscure item, because it's not necessarily strange, is, is that I have a, a particular condiment uh, called house dressing, which comes from the cheese shop in Williamsburg, where I went to, <laughs> went to school. And you can, you can only get it at the one store in Williamsburg. Shipping it costs more than the bottles themselves. So it doesn't make any sense to do that. So I get it in an annual Christmas gift from my father-in-law who lives nearby. That is the, now the thing that passed like four years in a row. I get from him is two of these jars of this condiment, which will then last me for all of my sandwiches for the next year. Wow. You got you to gotta give us a little bit of color on the sauce. Like what, 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 what's, it, what's in it? What's the style? So it is, it is kind of a thousand island Russian style, like, like, you know, it's, it's not overly spicy. It's kind of a mayo based thousand island ish sort of thing. Uh, it's a secret recipe, of course. And, <laughs> and so you don't exactly know what it is. Like, of course there, you can Google it and find like knockoffs that are pretty close. 
but that that's it. And, and it came as a poor college student. It was the condiment of choice on the sandwiches there. Or for being really poor, you could get bread ends and house dressing, which you would buy the bag of leftover sandwich <laughs> ends for like 99 cents and a cup of the dressing, which was a snack. And it was wow. An uh, and so that was the like, you could get something to eat for two bucks. Right. <laughs> the only thing you need is K-Rab to, to dunk in there. Exactly. As a, as a connoisseur of condiments, I would say that's uh, that sounds like a, a local special version of McDonald's special sauce. But uh, there are very many regionalisms of that. And uh, growing up in Utah, you would, our version of it was fry sauce. Yeah. Oh, yeah, not, yeah, yeah. Ketchup, not, not mayonnaise, fry sauce. Fry and sauce. it's in the same family. Well, right. I have to say, if you if you get to Washington State, Arctic Circle, where I think they still have a couple of Arctic Circle drive-ins, they had a great special sauce, as did Zips in Spokane. So the, the Zips, yeah. Papa Joe Burger, whatever they put on there, it's like uh, cocaine or something. Arctic Circle. For, for those of you who don't know, Arctic Circle is actually a chain of restaurants that was founded in Utah. And they invented fry sauce. And, uh, and this this is condiments from around the world from the guys <laughs> like, killing it. <laughs> you can tell what our real passions in life are. Yes. <laughs> Templates and checklists are just the start. Our community includes all of the best-selling books on managed services in all available formats, plus free training, members-only programs, and the best business training available to manage service providers anywhere. Plus, we have weekly live members-only Zoom calls. The average member saves more than 200% of their membership cost each year. We are totally dedicated to your success. Just because you're in business for yourself doesn't mean you have to go it alone. Join us today at smallbizthoughts.org. Alrighty. So let's go ahead and do a show. Topic one today, we don't have a link per se, but I wanted to take a, a minute, just take a step and say, all right, where are we with the workplace? Because we've had different sort of approaches for the last two years about what it means. Are people ever going to go back? Of course, some people said if no one will ever go back, which was always silly. And some people said everyone will always go back, which is also silly. So where are we settling down? And I just throw out a few questions to and, and just grab one of them. What percentage of people are going to go back permanently? Will we always have a hybrid workplace where mm, it's somewhere between 20 and 80% of people are in the office 20 to 80% of the time? Um, has the concept of the office changed forever from a technology perspective? Um, and if so, because I kind of think it has, was this something that we should have seen coming a little bit sooner and COVID just sped it up? Uh, and what's next that we might not have foreseen yet, but, you know, uh, as uh, Burris tells us, you can always see the future. It's already been created. It's just not available to everybody yet. Okay, so I'll, I'll throw out some numbers. I'll throw out some specific guesses. My Put my analyst hat on. I will give you actual thoughts and numbers. So I'm going to go forth and say, Roughly 10 to 15% of businesses are going to go completely back to 100% the way of the, the past, right? They are, and, and, and that's an absolute, right? There is no remote, like not allowed, nothing. 
that, so it's it's a small number. It's like 10, 10 or fifteen percent, probably ten. If you made me pick one, you're gonna have a big swath of about seventy five percent of companies that adopt hybrid. And I'm putting hybrid in quotes. And what they mean by that is they're gonna kind of half ass it. They're gonna do <laughs> like they're gonna they're gonna give some space for remote work, meaning they're gonna define that by well, you get two days out of the office or three days out of the office. They're gonna do some kind of BS stupid bit where they don't actually take advantage of the benefits of any of this. They're just gonna bow to having some rules and and there'll be this messy bit of the majority in the middle that is doing it stupidly. I'm going to just say it like it's just not the best way to implement. And then there's going to be a, a top end, which, you know, my math is bad because I'm bad at math, but like a 15%, maybe, maybe 20, right? But 15% is left over in the way I did the math to say, these are going to be the ones that actually figure this out right and do this from a method where they're, they're not measuring any of these other metrics. They're actually just looking at it and saying, what we're actually about is figuring out the right way to do work, quote unquote. We are moving to asynchronous. We have a different management style. We are, our measurement is all productivity. It is all output. It is all of those things. And they would actually look at the rest of the discussion and go, yeah, that's all wrong. Like that's just a waste. So that, that, sliver for you is going to be more productive, more profitable, and employees are going to be relaxed. And, and, and it's, and I'm not, by the way, as an analyst, I'm not generally that wrong off because best in class is always somewhere around 10 or 20% of the market. Right? So this is really easy for me to make that prediction because it always happens this way. <laughs> it always falls out. But see, you're making, you're making the killer point there, right? It's not just a standard distribution of styles. It's a ranking of effectiveness, right? And, and that distinction, I think, is absolutely critical. This is not a question of can you or can't you or should you or shouldn't you. It's how well are you able to implement this? Because what we have learned in the last two and a half years now is that the employees do prefer this in many cases. Uh, customers actually prefer to deal with you remotely rather than having you come to their office all the time in person. Um, there's there's a lot about remote that's not just band-aiding things together, but it's actually a more efficient, more effective way to go. And as Carl always reminds us, the humans are going to feel better and they're going to be less stressed out and therefore they will like to work here and they will get more done. But just because it's better doesn't mean all businesses are capable of doing it well. And I think you're going to find that there is a it, this is a new frontier in the battle for labor. And obviously, that's a big battle these days. Recruiting people is hard, um, but this is going to become the new hook. Right. I know firsthand directly two people. One is a pre-sales technician in the cloud uh, technology space. And another is a sales leader in the technology channel. And both of these individuals have just gone through uh, job searches. And, you know, yeah, they were focused on money and they were focused on benefits and they were focused on things. But in both cases, you know, at the end, by the way, it's really hard to recruit people. They got multiple offers. Each of them got more than one offer. And the one they chose was the one that said, well, you can choose. If you want to come to the office because you need to get some stuff done, cool, that's fine. But if you want to be 100% remote, knock yourself out. We're going to measure you by your productivity. And that trumped 
salary in both cases, right? Now, they, it wasn't like they gave you half of the money back in return for that. They gave back a little bit of money in return for flexibility. So one of the other things, and I think it's super important that we bring it back to the IT industry, I think the office has has permanently changed. And I think that it's it literally was overdue. But think about the people who have come into the workforce in the last two years, who have literally come into the workforce being trained on a remote first opportunity. Now they still, many of them still want to go to work. That's their social life. That's where they meet people, so forth and so on. But for the IT industry, we need to understand that our next group of customers may have been maybe companies that were founded remote first. And so that the group that Dave was talking about at the top, that 15, 20%, I really think that a lot of them are going to be the ones who emerge and are created as remote companies primarily, and then say, when you need to come into the office, because there are legitimate reasons to get into an office, get all of your team together, build some culture, right, so forth and so on. Um, but I think that remote first is those people who are going to be at that top 15 or 20%. And the IT industry needs to say, look, we will nurture you, we will make you as successful as possible. And we're not even going to talk to you about putting equipment in a room and buying an air conditioner. <laughs> Right. And, and by the way, and I keep, you know, if anybody listening on my show, I'm talk too much here because, by the way, everything Carl just described is interesting consulting services on top of technology implementation and should be the space where listeners here are making the cash because that's where the opportunity is. So let's move us on to our, our second topic of the day. Um, this is an interesting article about a, a declaration that uh, the EU, the US, and 32 other countries just announced called the Declaration for the Future of the Internet. We've included an, a link to the uh, summarize, summarizing of the signatures, but also of the document itself. And the idea, it's a three-page uh, declaration where it offers a broad vision of the internet uh, in terms of the, the way it's to going to go directionally. So the idea around potential for the technologies, things like net neutrality, the idea of, of making sure free expression is, is allowed while still protecting citizens' rights and data, data privacy. It's a big encapsulation of that. Um, I did cover it on Business of Tech, and at the time I made the comment of, I love this all in principle, uh, none of, until it's codified in law, uh, I'm not necessarily all that interested like being codified as a treaty. You can codify it in individual country privacy laws. Sure, it is a structure and a direction for that, but unless you have all the underlying stuff, it doesn't matter. The EU does have a lot of the underlying stuff, so <laughs> let me observe that. And additionally, I think it would be remiss if we didn't cover the fact that this is another piece of the declaration of the directions of the splinter net, knowing that this is the way this group of countries have declared that is different than the others. Uh, I'm going to throw it to you guys. You guys saw it as well. Carl, you want to kick us off? Like, what was your take when you saw this declaration? Well, my first thought, of course, and I, you know, to go back to Berners-Lee and the declaration for the the web, um, I think that more and more there's there's literally going to be Western countries falling in line to basically say these are our fundamental principles. Like, this is what we believe as Western culture, so forth and so on, and that's going to make it even more visible and obvious when. Uh, and I'll just shout out, you know, Russia and China decide that they're going to lead an alternative view of 
what this looks like for the rest of the world. I will note, uh, I saw an article that the internet was not cut off in Ukraine. And I don't know if that means Russia wasn't able to do it or made some strategic decision not to do it. But, you know, the internet is literally one of these tools that left to itself it will bring freedom and it will bring democracy. And so there's there's some quote unquote legitimate reasons why certain countries don't want that in their borders. Well, you bring up an interesting control element. So I'll, I'll give you a, a just happen kind of thing. So in fact, uh, internet was cut off in a portion of, of, the, of Ukraine over the, during the course of the conflict. The Russians restored it and they routed it through their own, their backbone and are filtering <laughs> it their, to, to their standards. So they're actually now using that as a tool of control in that region because they were they, they, it was cut off uh, through the conflict and now they brought it back on but under their version. So it's really interesting to see that that will not only that will be a level of political control even during a conflict in exactly that, that circumstance. Well you know the the uh, Russians have been irritated a little bit that we've cranked up uh, Radio Free Europe. Uh, which had been, you know, basically had gone to the internet for a while, and then we realized, no, it needs to go back to radio waves, which can't be intercepted and <laughs> filtered through Moscow. Um, and so, we're in many ways, we're refighting something that we we literally fought 75 years ago, right? And so it's like, okay, uh, what changes? You know, things change. The more they change, the more they stay the same, right? But uh, it, it will be interesting to see how this evolves because this isn't the last conflict where managing the internet and managing access is going to be an element. Brian, what was your, what you, when you were looking at the declaration, what was your take? So my, so I was highly encouraged by the philosophy and equally pragmatic as, as your approach. I don't see much changing, but the major shift that I saw was that this is a, this is a move in the direction of the regulatory mentality towards what the EU is doing, right? You, you touched on it earlier that the idea of, uh, of data privacy and access regulation and human rights on the Internet is something that the EU has been doing much better than the rest of the world. And what the U.S. just said was, and I mean, you guys remember years ago, we talked about the splinter net. We said, well, maybe there'll be China, there'll be Russia, there'll be the EU, there'll be the U.S., and then everybody else has to pick and choose. Seems like maybe recent events are going to lead us to a world where the EU and the U.S. might combine. And if those two combine, that will be enough clout to be the dominant platform that dictates standards and technologies for everybody who's designing for one platform. I think that's really encouraging, and it has to be the reasoning. Because I don't think that we just suddenly grew a conscience and said, well, yeah, now we're going we're gonna to choose to support human rights on the Internet. I think what we said was we looked around and went, oh, the Chinese Internet could be much larger than the American one. And the Russian or the EU, depending on loyalties and whatever, um, those could be larger. We didn't want to come in third place in Internet size. So I think that what I'm reading between the lines here, noble idea very interesting progress don't like the idea of human rights abuses but let's be pragmatic and say eu plus us equals the largest remaining openly available internet. well 
I'm going to I'm going to weigh in and say I think it's actually going to go the worst way, which is you're exactly right. EU plus US. But the way it's going to happen is EU will set the rules. American companies which want to do business in Europe because it's a large market will implement those rules and Americans will get none of the actual benefits while with while still having all of the the uh, the rule structure imposed. I think that's the way it's going to actually fall out. So I don't want to leave this topic without also saying, like the, the the divide east and west and whatever is is one thing, but there's also a big piece of this that says it needs to be universally available and affordable. And it, the interesting part is Russia and China and their you know their circles they want universal availability because it helps them control. But it's in the West and in particular in the United States where we have these divisions where. We have people who can't afford the internet. We have people who have to uh, be on some government program to get the internet. We have areas where you can't get access to the internet. You know, by comparison, Europe is pretty small, uh, where the U.S. and Australia are actually pretty big, and uh, it costs money to provide universal internet. So this isn't all a, an east versus west thing. Uh, it's also a have and have not thing. And we have not a lot of good answers for how to fix it in the short term. Um, uh, third topic, guys, let's let's jump over to the topic of money, specifically how much money are you getting paid? And I mean that in the royal you um, uh, we're, we're linking to an article here from Insider, which I think is uh, a good testament to actual journalism. Like, hey, let's get some people out there who go and do the investigation, find the data, and uh, then aggregate it, make it easily accessible to everybody else. You know, journalism. Um, I think that that's a really good topic for this one because they're revealing actual numbers for employees at big tech firms. Not not us here in the channel, right? The little guys that are out here moving most of the marketplace, but the great big guys, the uh, the Googles, the Amazons, the Metas, the et cetera's, um, that's a, a large chunk of our industry. And I don't know about you guys, but I read this article and my first reaction was, holy crap, I'm doing the wrong thing for a living. And uh, I would love to get your reaction a, to some of the numbers you see, but B, what this means for you, me, and every other small business person in the technology industry who still needs to hire people with actual technical skills. Well, a couple of notes. First of all, at the top, they, they mentioned that CompTIA, you know, pointed out that we've added 80,000 jobs to our industry, you know, which is great. They didn't point out the other number from CompTIA, which is that we're still a million human beings short of filling all the openings that we have in, in technology. So, you know, one of the reasons for these numbers, which by the way, my first thought was, oh, they added in a zero by accident. <laughs> <laughs> my first thought was, holy smokes, some of these 350,000, 400,000, 600,000, these are really unbelievable numbers. Um, on the other hand, these are the largest companies in the world. And if they if they need one thing, it's they need to not lose any of these employees to smaller companies. Uh, and if you are Google and Microsoft and Apple and Intel and da 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 da, you can actually afford these salaries. Well, and it's the it's the revenue to employee ratio that's really important here, right? So so if you if you think 
kind of historically about big companies previously. They had much lower revenue numbers and required more humans to deliver those products. If you, in the current, you know, a bits-focused world rather than a physical uh, thing, widgets world, bits are, allow you to create much larger scale digitally, create a whole lot more financial value with far less humans. So it makes a lot of sense that when you think about a revenue to, to uh, labor ratio, that of course those humans are going to be commanding much larger dollars because the ratios completely work. Uh, so that was my first bid. And, and by the way, that's super important for any of us on the kind of services side to look at, because by the way, we're in the services business, not in the product business, which is never as good from a ratios perspective. So this is, it's important to realize. My first and a half reaction was also the, for any of these companies who have people dealing with the physical portions of what they do, Amazon, Instacart, Uber, like there's a number of companies on here. I just have to go tisk tisk for you of not valuing a portion of your labor chain that you incredibly rely on, that you do not have a business without. Amazon, you do not have warehouses to deliver those products without those people. Lyft, you do not have, you know, in Uber, you do not have a product without the drivers themselves. You can call it whatever you want from an outsourcing. And I look at that and say like, that shame on you for the levels that you're paying at when you're not actually truly observing that ratio the way that it should be. Now, what does it mean practically for, for anybody in our space? Particularly if you're in a major metro of any kind, you have to know that at the minimum, this is what you're competing against. This is the, the, the level with the demand that it's at the level. You're going to have to address that. Uh, and frankly, I do think that most entrepreneurs in this space are going to have to take a much more long-term pipeline building approach. You may have to build your own talent and have to have it through the pipeline and know you will lose it. And that's okay. If you are bringing somebody in and you, you know, you train them and you have them through your, have, they have a great experience with you for two to three years and then they go make the big bucks, that's going to have to be okay because you are not able to achieve those ratios. That's, yeah, I think that's an exceptionally valuable point. Tactical observation, your business is not defined by whether or not you presently have the best employee in the world. Your business can and should be defined by whether or not you are the environment in which it is reliably repeatable to manufacture new good employees, right? And, and I've been saying this for many years. Uh, there's there's three things I always say when it comes to this human resources recruiting and, and staffing perspective in the channel. Number one, always be recruiting. I don't care if you got an open headcount position or not. You always need to be working because this is like sales and you need to build that pipeline and, and have candidates ready to go before you have a job opening so that it doesn't take you six to 12 months to actually fill this thing. The second one is you absolutely have to admit that you cannot afford to compete with the biggest in the world. So pay for performance. 
hire young, hire talented, hire eager, and pay them for their results, right? It's, it's not unaffordable to pay a sales rep in a small business a half a million dollars if they produce $2 million in gross profit, right? You're, I, I'm not going to tell you how much you can earn. Uncapped, unlimited total compensation is up to you. And as small businesses, we need to absolutely embrace that. And thing number three, love your people. Like, right? like seriously, in this world with all of that stuff, if you, it's going to take you a while to hire that next new person. It will cost you more than it has ever cost you before. The single best thing you can do is don't lose the ones you already have. And that's not only about money. Obviously, there's culture, there's connection, there's belief and buy into the mission. There's personal relationships. Don't don't ignore your existing employees. And I will do a circle back to topic number one. If they want to work remotely, freaking let them because that's what it takes to keep people in today's world. Well, and in our industry, uh, we, we're probably one of the last industries that will actually be replaced by robots. <laughs> so the result is that I think the next 10 years is there's going to be a huge growth industry in how to nurture employees, how to train them, how to keep them, how to, you know, love them and, and make sure that they have opportunities for growth. I've always enjoyed hiring younger people and training them and giving them opportunities and letting them grow into the new human beings they're going to be in it anyway in five years you know, why not give them a little guidance and, and some skill set so that if they came with no portfolio, they leave with a fat portfolio of things that they've done and a, and a much, you know, better resume, um, because then they will say good things about you and, and recommend you to their friends. And, you know, that that's all good down the road. All righty. Sadly, that does it for episode 163 of the Killing It podcast thanks for tuning in to the killing it podcast please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on itunes stitcher and all the podcast places join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business